EMSradio.com. EMS information for the next generation. The EMS Garage is a production of EMSradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage. I'm your host, Chris Montera, and we took a week off. Sorry about that. We uh, had a little bit of traveling to do, and uh, poor Scott had an emergency come up at the end. But, hey, we're here, and we're talking to you. We're pretty happy about that. I'm Chris Montera, the Geeky Medic, your host for the host with the mostest. I don't know if that works or not. But anyway, I'm here and uh, I'm happy to be back. And, uh, you know, we're still retooling some things with EMS, the next EMS radio star. So my hope is to have that up for you guys very soon. And you can start submitting things to us and, and get us going. But first, I'd like to introduce our dis- our distinguished panel of guests tonight. Uh, Mr. Gary Wingrove. Hello, sir. Hey, good evening, Chris. Hey, man. It's been a long time since you've been on. I like to get on every hundredth episode or so. <laughs> I think it's fifty. You're you're right in fifty, so it's good. There for a while, you were on every one of them, and now you're. you're uh, speaking of travel, where you got to be tired. Have you recovered from Australia? Um, I'm getting there. Getting there. Spent uh, most of this week in St. Louis. I did not run into Chris, and now I'm in uh, Omaha. Oh wow! What are you doing in Omaha? You got a meeting over there. Or just uh, yeah, tomorrow morning. Um, but then I get a whole I get a whole week at home next week. Ooh, very nice. That's a nice that's a nice thing. Well, welcome and thank you for coming on. It'll be good. Right on. Also joining us, Mr. Tim Noonan. You're welcome. How are you, sir, Mr. Tim Noonan? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. Nice to hear you and see you. You've been more of a Sasquatch than I have. Well, you still have that autographed uh, picture to uh, auction off. I do, and someday I will. Maybe I'll keep it for myself. I really like it. Well, you can make as many copies as you need. <laughs> right on. Thanks for joining us. Also joining us today, Mr. Pat Songer. How are you, sir? How you doing, Chris? Good. Nice to hear from you, although I'm glad that you made it back from Burning Man. We talked about that a few episodes ago, but uh, glad to see you're alive and kicking still. I think I'm still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, thanks for coming on. And also joining us, uh, fresh from uh, uh, surgery. I don't know if you want people to tell that because I can cut that out. Uh, Mr. Russell Stein, how are you, sir? Although you had it on uh, Facebook. Yeah, everyone already knows, so it's no big deal. Right on. And you so. and you're feeling great or good? You're good. Oh, you're not great. Oh yeah, the oh yeah, the Delonid is awesome. So the if PA you. Is- so if you say things in this episode, you may be like, I don't know what I said. Uh, no, I'm not that out of it. Cool. Dilaudid's a great drug. Holy cow. I'm very yeah. impressed with it. Oh, but, yeah. I, I like it a lot. 
I think someday we'll have it as a good use for EMS. And I know here in our in our one of our systems locally, they use it for interfacility transport. So they they um, premedicate the patient before they leave with the Dilaudid. It lasts a lot longer. It's a little bit better than morphine. Has a few fewer side effects, and it's a great drug. So glad to hear. Yeah, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna stick with. I think we're uh, we're on track to get fentanyl at some point in Memphis. So, oh, fentanyl's a great drug. You guys don't have fentanyl yet. No, oh, that's a crime. We, we're, we've actually removed almost all the morphine from our protocol, and we only use it on long distance ortho injuries. We've even gone to fentanyl for MI. I think we're, uh, yeah, we're, uh, well, we're actually looking at downplaying the role of morphine in, in chest pain anyway. So, I think we're gonna. I think fentanyl might get thrown in there at some point, but not anytime soon. Right on. Maybe Mr. Plus, Tim. Maybe Tim. Tim would probably go. Yeah, that's right. Our biggest problem is cost, but right. It is a little bit more expensive for sure. Tim, what do you have to say about that? Are you? In I on think that? fentanyl's great. Uh, it should be used more often, and it's probably uh, the best EMS drug that we have for uh, pain management because it wears off quickly. So if you heavily sedate somebody. You don't have to worry about leaving them in the emergency department where they need one-on-one observation from the nurses. You know, and that's a good point because later on tonight we're going to talk about Virginia paramedics using ultrasound. But apparently um, Pat Songer's service is already using ultrasound. So, you know, even even in the case of abdominal pain, we should be given fentanyl and other things. So that's that's really good. I yeah, they won't it. get. They won't give me any fentanyl lollipops. I've already asked. Uh, <laughs> those are great, though. Those are those are more long term management pain issues, though, for sure. Yeah. Well, how mo- how long do you make your lollipops last? One, two, three. World, <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> That's good. Well, uh, tonight I had Gary join us because I, I wanted to find out a little bit. He just came back from Australia, fresh off the plane almost, well, a week away. And I uh, just wanted to see what happened at the International Roundtable of Community Paramedics in Australia and maybe give us a little teaser and tell us a little bit about uh, international paramedics. So, Gary, what happened? Uh, how, how were the... How did everything go for the International Roundtable? I'm really kind of sad I missed it, kind of not sad I missed it. I don't know. I'm kind of going both ways on this because that's a long flight for two days. But, man, I, I really wish I'd have been there because I know you had a lot of good people. Yeah, it was a good session. We um, uh, normally average about 50 people, and I don't know what the final count was for this one, but it was somewhere in that ballpark, and uh, normally the uh, sessions are populated heavily by the country where we hold it. That was certainly the case for this time as well, but we had a good group from the states there and um, had some good interaction time. So this was our seventh meeting. We had the first one in Halifax, the second one in Minnesota, the third one in Queensland, the fourth one in British Columbia, the fifth one in New Zealand, the sixth one last year in Vail and now this year in um, New South Wales. So um, IRCP, of course, uh, has a single mission, which is to promote community paramedicine and to be a resource for policymakers and uh, governments and services and other people and to convene discussions. And so um, some nice things have sort of spawned out of the International Roundtable. It's a virtual organization. We don't have an office or staff or uh, mailing address or anything and 
uh, somehow we've been pretty successful. There's a lot of people talking about what IRCP does, and uh, that's worked pretty well for us. But we've had some uh, things that have been nice results of having the, the roundtable convene. Uh, the first one was a collaboration that got together because uh, after our first meeting, we recognized that many of the programs that have been established have been done by a single ambulance company to, to solve a single community's needs. And um, we saw a lot of people starting from scratch doing the same programs, putting the same training programs together. And it had never been in the educational system. So one of the first things we did after the um, initial roundtable in 2005 was we put together a collection of uh, universities and others from Nebraska, Minnesota, Nova Scotia, and Australia to um, collect what everybody would give to us in terms of uh, training that they had done and try to package that into a curriculum. And so we formed a group we call the Community Healthcare and Emergency Cooperative for that. We did the uh, first uh, curriculum and pilot tested it in Minnesota and uh, did an update after that. And, of course, Chris, you know all about the second one because you ran the uh, second curriculum pilot there in Colorado. And now we're in the process of moving to version three, which is a fairly major rewrite. Uh, but I think it's going to hold us for three or four years, at least I hope so. And um, starting sometime in early 2012, we're getting six states together to run a pilot of that new curriculum at the same time. And it'll be our first uh, foray into um, pilot testing distance learning. So uh, we'll be doing much of the didactic portion all at the same time over a distance learning platform. We'll be using Blackboard for those of you that might be familiar with that. And... Um, Hopefully that will be a success and we can start plotting it into future work as well. So that's one nice thing that was kind of a unexpected um, output of IRCP. Another is that uh, we got a chance to spend some time with our colleagues, a little more time than we had before, and um, the uh, North Central EMS Institute, National EMS Management Association, and the EMS Chiefs of Canada formed the organization known as the Center for Leadership, Innovation, and Research in EMS. And uh, we have packaged a few products under that label as uh, sort of joint ventures. One is our benchmarking program. We also have the EMS Agency Research Network, which is a partnership with the University of Pittsburgh. And we have about 50 ambulance services across North America that are all doing research projects together. And um, you should have Daniel on sometime soon, uh, Chris, because there's going to be a special edition of uh, a, sp a supplement, a special supplement to the January edition of, pre of uh, PEC, Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, the NAMSP publication, and okay. it's going to feature um, three of the research projects that MSARN is doing, and uh, one from one or two from Canada that are part of the EMS chief. So, uh, people should be watching for that issue to come up. Well, he's only about on, a year ago. He's only on once every hundred episodes, so that's about true. So yeah. that would make it about right. <laughs> Yeah, that'll make it about right. Um, and then another thing we did with uh, the center is um, start the about a year ago we started the anonymous uh, patient safety event reporting system, known as Event, the EMS Voluntary Event Notification Tool. We have about twenty uh, patient safety reports in there now from the U.S. and Canada. Um, several of them involve patient deaths. Uh, some of them involve some. Um, equipment that has misfunctioned, um, some of those I.O. devices where there have been drill bit 
breakages and whatnot. Um, and we're in the process now. We're going to roll this out at uh, EMS today, I'm pretty sure, but we're working with NAEMT now to do a EMS near-miss um, event reporting page on that same site. And uh, once we get that one rolled out, we're um, going to be looking at doing a line-of-duty death registry. So we've got some plans moving forward for um, event to expand a little bit. And then uh, earlier this year in April, uh, Mike Nolan, the president of the U.S. Chiefs of Canada, and I asked some people to come together in Ottawa. We uh, had... Uh, 15 people from five countries join us there, and uh, the 17 of us spent some time talking about trying to create an international EMS strategic plan and to look at some of the best practices that are occurring in various places and try to set an agenda that multiple countries could work on at the same time. So we call that um, the Paramedic G5 Summit, and um, the eventual output of that was the creation of another virtual organization that we've called International Paramedic. And um, uh, the mission of that organization is to uh, sort of be the keeper of the international strategic plan and have people in multiple countries uh, working on implementing stuff at the same time. We held, um, during the IRCP meeting in Australia, we held two meetings for international paramedic, one during the Paramedics Australasia Conference and the other one during IRCP. It unfortunately was middle of the night back here in the States when we did it. But uh, we did have Todd Stout um, join us from the middle of the night, and uh, we had uh, people from Germany and Switzerland and Mexico, I think, um, come on the line. So uh, we've put together some um, uh, little work plan for international paramedic, we have one project that's already going on. Um, International Paramedic adopted the same naming structure that IRCP has, and you featured that on podcasts before, and that's the uh, primary care paramedic, intermediate care paramedic, advanced care paramedic, community paramedic, and paramedic service labels. Um, so that's the same language that we use for International Paramedic, and so it does not exclude EMTs. We just don't call them EMTs. Um, but a few things that came out of the sessions we held for international paramedic were that are on a work plan now is uh, to create a healthy paramedics toolkit, to uh, create a toolkit of support pieces for developing countries, countries that need help starting basically from scratch with their EMS, um, creating a book of paramedic and paramedic service best practices, there's an existing multi-country project already underway that's working on standards and quality indicators for best practice in paramedic and interprofessional experiential practice, and we've been invited to join that. That's uh, being led by one of the universities in Australia. Um, we plan on issuing or identifying some of the gaps in country-to-country border issues like paramedic passports, ambulance access time at screening points, cross-country paramedic and paramedic service credentialing. Um, we've identified a publication that uh, we're working with now to perhaps become the official peer review publication for international paramedic. Um, creating a paramedic protocol wiki. One of the uh, participants in our program has done quite a bit of work in that already, so we're talking with him about how best to either transition it to our web page or, or link to what he's already got going. We're going to start a reference document repository 
we want to catalog the function of medical direction internationally. We're, we've discovered that that's kind of all over the board, all the way from paramedics having independent practice to um, sort of the model we have here in the U.S. So we want to try to get an understanding of what that looks like in many of the countries and um, see if there are some best practices in there. And then also um, catalog some existing and prior exchange programs for paramedics and paramedic service chiefs and uh, have international paramedic become the hub for those kinds of activities. So um, we've got some work for that group to do. Um, it's like IRCP. Anybody can be a participant in it. The web page is www.internationalparamedic.org. And uh, to participate is fairly easy. On that page, you click on Google Group. That'll take you to the uh, Google Group site. Um, and uh, you won't really see much there except an opportunity to sign up. And then uh, once you sign up, uh, I and a couple of other people get an email. We approve you into the Google group, and then you can start posting and reacting to what other people do. But equally as important is you can look back at some of the discussions that have already been occurring within that Google group because uh, once you're part of the group, then the web page um, becomes available for you to, to uh, look at. So in terms of the um, IRCP and Council of Ambulance Authorities Rural and Remote Symposium, which are uh, done, were done together this year, we had um, different groups that met during break time. So we, we'd have a, a few sessions, we'd take a break, we'd have a few sessions, we'd have lunch, we'd have a few sessions, take a break, that kind of a thing. And so we uh, put some groups together, and they met consistently, the same people during the break and lunch times and then uh, at the end of the session the groups uh, pr uh, put together what they saw as the top three issues that um, had uh, uh, come through during the two days of session so let me tell you what those look like the white group had their three things were uh, looking at the impact of changing workforce models uh, around training and that had to do with some presentations that were um, it's uh, easier to keep rural people rural if we can take the training to them rather than have them go to an urban place. They're less likely to, re to return rural. Second was investing in retention strategies for volunteers. Um, South Australia has put together this really cool brochure uh, that I hope we can um, make public and even customizable at some point, but it's, it's uh, aimed at going uh, to businesses and um, and letting them understand what it's like to have them make a commitment of letting some of their people leave work to go out on calls. The South Australia model is, um, is kind of neat. I haven't really seen this anywhere in the States. We have a lot of places doing that stuff in the States. But what they do differently in South Australia is um, they pay the uh, – they reimburse the business that lets their people go – for the um, pay that the person going on the ambulance call would normally get, and, and that keeps them uh, keeps the payroll consistent for the person that volunteers. Um, it uh, gives a little bit of money back to the business for uh, actually supporting the ambulance service. It's just kind of a cool thing. But they've got this uh, five or six page pamphlet booklet that uh, um, just has a lot of stuff in it. It's really cool. So we'll make that public sometime. Uh, and then the third one was the need to educate the rural workforce in chronic disease management. The yellow group um, identified rural recruitment, clinical support, and role clarification for 
um, career paramedics, volunteers, and community nurses as they uh, work with ambulance services. The red group, recruitment and retention, training and education, and cross-border jurisdiction. The blue group, the measurement of the whole of health benefit of community paramedicine. Uh, We need some research to document the um, how community paramedics make a difference in communities. Degradation of skills that are rarely used, uh, how to lead a community paramedic program given that it's not protocol driven for the most part, emotional resilience and providing support. The green group was, um, uh, their issues were identifying a need for community paramedic service, rural skill retention research. Um, further developing the South Australian Employment Participation Guide for use elsewhere, promotion of balanced scorecard as a concept for ambulance services, and then um, Australia. We have some rural and remote areas of the United States, but it's really nothing like the outback. And uh, so one of the issues that um, they're dealing with in Australia is the need for a community paramedic in a place that's uh, two or three hours from the ambulance base station and um, whether or not you can do that with someone who's going to be still taking emergency call or if you have to separate that workforce. So um, they would like to see some work done about uh, how that capacity can be managed. And the black group, scope of practice versus role and the domain of practice, the evolution from emergency care to, to um community paramedicine and being part of the healthcare team. So as we looked at those um, kind of in mass, we came up with two very um, overall conclusions, the main issues being recruitment and retention of rural and remote staff and uh, where ambulances fit in the, in the um, health system, the role of community paramedics. So um, we had some good work. The uh, staff of the Council of Ambulance Authorities will be compiling uh, what I just said, and also um, a myriad of issues that did not make one of those lists from the group. And uh, we'll have uh, something that we can place on the IRCP website for download that better captures the whole of what the meeting did at some future point. So that's kind of my report. I'll pause there and see if you have any questions. Well, I had a couple of comments. I think mine, my biggest one was, yeah, Australia, I think calling Australia rural in the, in the non-metropolitan <laughs> areas is like, I don't know, calling the moon rural. I mean, they have 22 million people jam packed into an area the size of the United States. I mean, it's, it's actually, um, kind of scary how, how, um, sparse their population is once you get outside of the the metropolitan areas especially on the coast so uh yeah it's uh if there ever was a need it's more like northern nevada right pat i mean it's pretty very sparse not not a lot of people and a lot of a lot of miles between anything else for sure it's a 16 hour 16 hour drive from the southern part of new south wales to the northern part of new south wales wow but there's only yep. there's only ten states, right? Or eight states? Um, six. Six. Okay. Yeah, I can never yeah. remember. Wow. Pat, were you going to say something about no, Nevada? I mean, <laughs> some, you know, there's some. You know, we we have two hour responses to you know places that have small population centers, and 
one thing that was brought up a couple weeks ago at our administration discussion was how to provide a clinic in a remote area called Denial, which is an hour and a half from here and has a handful of people. But the uh, mining industry is starting to impact the area, and uh, people aren't willing to come all the way to Winnemucca for their health care needs. So, you know, there's some correlation there. And, and how do you handle emergency response up there? How do you handle clinic needs? And is there an opportunity for a community paramedic be based up there to merge the public safety and public health aspects that are going on up there. And Chris, one thing I forgot, our meeting in 2012 will be in June um, in Vancouver, so it will be easy for people from the United States to get to and people from Canada. The EMS Chiefs of Canada conference will be June 14th and 15th. That's a Thursday and Friday. And the IRCP meeting will be June 16th and 17th. That's a Saturday and a Sunday. And the EMS so people can mark their go ahead. calendars for that now. People can mark their calendars for that now, and we'll get more information out as soon as we can. And if you've never been to the EMS Chiefs of Canada meeting, I hear uh, meeting conference. I'm not really sure, but man, they they talk about some pretty interesting issues, and I've seen some of the things that come out of them, and. Um, they're very progressive, and they really know what they want for their industry in Canada, and they they make it happen. They're not they're not just a group that sits around and and does nothing. And uh, I've been very very impressed with Mike Nolan and the guys up there, and do a great job for sure. And then, are, are, is it in Vancouver proper? And then, will we get like a day to tour around like Vancouver Island or something, and go out? You know, maybe go out into the little inlets out there and have some fun. Or no. Um, we'll, we'll have local people that can arrange basically whatever you want to. Right on. If you've never been to Vancouver, it's a beautiful city. Oh my gosh. It's absolutely gorgeous. So I I highly recommend it. And then, uh, obviously stay a night in Seattle because I think it's beautiful too. So, uh, well, Gary, thank you so much. You know, I, I guess I'm impressed with all the work that you guys did and it seemed, I think what's really cool about every IRCP is it takes on, a little bit of the flavor of the area, but then it also um, just morphs into its own thing. We kind of have an agenda a little bit at the beginning, but by the end, we're just we're just all sitting around talking about things that we can do to improve the industry. and And if you really want to get involved in our industry and start looking at people that are, I don't want to call movers and shakers, but man, there, there's a lot of people there that really can change our industry and have changed our industry and, and really are looking to, to move things forward. So I, I, it's on my calendar. I'm, I'm 98% sure I'm going next year. Even if I have to pay for it out of my own pocket, I'll be there. So I'm excited about Vancouver. Um, I can get the train all the way from my house to there. So why not? Why not go? Uh, a lot of fun. Um, thanks for the update. Now, International Paramedic, it sounds like you guys did a lot of work there, too. Was there, um, do you feel like that group is, to me, and I was kind of, I was a part of that initial guiding document, but to me, it seems like it's just moving so fast, and, and it's moving faster than probably anything else we've done. Do you feel that way, or do you feel like it's at the right pace, Gary? Um, I, I like the pace that it's on. There are some people who wish we were moving faster, and then um, there, there are people that make the comment like you just did, like how can you do so much in a short period of time? And so that's you know, from the steering committee's perspective, um, that's a little difficult to balance, but it is a virtual group, and it is based on the commitment of 
uh, volunteers. Um, you'll see us asking for some volunteers to jump into some of the projects we have going. Penny Price from Alberta is working on a, a document that's cataloging the way that uh, EMS is structured in every country and their top subunit, meaning state or province. Um, and uh, so we're we're going to have a when we get done with that, we'll have a very comprehensive piece that will be consistent in the categories across the spreadsheet that will have identified um, the way different places work. And out of that, then we'll be able to garner the nuggets of best practices, or at least what seem like best practices, and and that will further move along our work plan. So that's the first major thing that we're doing. Um, and interestingly, we've had some already had some conversations with the World Health Organization, and they have a new pillar project that they're undertaking that uh, is multi-country um, and having to do with some road issues. And there's a chance that uh, international paramedic may be able to uh, be a resource, if not drive the uh, medical portion of um, their project. So we'll see how that comes together, but. Um, yeah, so the steering committee is uh, fairly active, and that's, uh, not everybody sees all of that activity. But um, as we get our, our work plan honed in, we'll be making requests for people to join in uh, and do committee work. And um, we're going to need uh, people from lots of different places because uh, our, our projects are designed around uh, cataloging practices that are occurring in, in different countries. So. Um, one of the things we're going to have to manage eventually is uh, language issues. Um, we've got systems in place to connect people by telephone and whatnot, but uh, uh, and for the most part, our participants so far are English speaking. But um, we've had the uh, Paramedic Association of Colombia join as a supporter. We've got some people from Mexico now, so we're, we're starting to have to deal with some issues with Spanish, and um, so we'll be looking for people that have. Um, fluency in other languages that uh, when we populate work, work groups that uh, we can make sure that we can have uh, good conversations and everybody can understand everybody else. So there's going to be, I think, lots of opportunity coming up. Um, it'll, it'll roll out. We're not going to roll it all out at once. We'll roll it out uh, periodically. So um, the best way to watch it is um, sign up for the Google group like Pat just did. And you're approved now, Pat. And um, We'll we'll get people connected as soon as we can. And I think the the cool thing about that is, is that you, you can be anybody. You can be the newest paramedic, newest EMT, whatever, and you can join this group and truly make a difference. If you're like, man, I have an idea, and I know I can make it, and um, I know Russell has a billion of them, so he can he can hop on that group, and you can join and, and just take part and fill us with your ideas, your knowledge, and, and I'm sure, and for me, I've learned a lot more than I've put in, and I think that that's been probably one of the bigger pieces for me. Gary, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about tonight was the um, the Community Paramedic Handbook that came out this week, and, and to me, I was so excited. I can't believe that there's such a kind of fervor over this this little document that we created at our system but uh the very first day i think in the first 12 hours you had 110 downloads from every continent even africa which i found was was pretty amazing so uh can you tell people what it is and where they can find it yeah so um uh, so when chris tells the story about how he got interested in community paramedicine it has to do with a conversation he and i had where 
um, Chris asked me for the cookbook for uh, or the list of activities that he was supposed to do to get started. And, of course, we didn't have one. Um, so um, being the smart guy that he is, Chris built that into their plan for doing the program there in Colorado and and uh, had um, someone monitoring all of the things that they were doing. And so with that um, and some funding from the state of Colorado and Chris's service, um, uh, they put together a, a program manual that has uh, a lot of stuff in it. It basically talks about all of the major issues and and how to deal with those, and um, really cool stuff in the appendix, uh, which is uh, forms and checklists and um, all of the utility kinds of things that people need um, as they're going through the process and getting off the ground. So we placed that on the uh, Internet, um, I think it was Monday night or Tuesday night, and um, in the first 24 hours, I haven't checked uh back since, but in the first 24 hours, we had 166 downloads from 11 countries um, of that document. So uh, I was quite surprised and amazed at the appetite that seems to exist for for uh, people about community paramedicine and wanting more information and thinking about how they can better serve their communities. And uh, so um, I was flabbergasted at the number of downloads that we got from that thing. So... Um, it's available if you go to communityparamedic.org, then there's a tab on that page that says Community Paramedic Program Manual. And uh, when you go there, um, there's a little description of the manual and then a form below it. You uh, fill out the form, which asks for your basically your name, address, and contact information. Uh, when you submit the form, then it is replaced by a link, which you click to download the document. With some browsers, um, once you click submit on the form, it takes you back to the top of the page, so you won't actually see the link unless you page down because it goes in the area where the form was, which is uh, sort of at the bottom of the screen. Um, so that's the one thing I'd uh, just like people to keep in mind. Um, if you don't see that link to click, just go down in your browser, and it'll be there in the same spot that the form was. Right on. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for putting that on. You know, thanks for putting that online because I think uh, yeah, I had several people telling me we needed to track who who it went to. Because you know, for me, I would just like, oh, give it away, give it away, give it away, give it a, give it to everybody, and and it's still free. It is absolutely free. But we want to make sure that we we know where it's going and and how we can help, and and at least you know we're not going to use it to spam you or email you or something stupid like that. But it's nice to it's nice for us to have those records because. I think as this program grows, it's really cool to see how we can be, uh, or at least see how it grows in other communities and how it grows across the country and across the world and what it really becomes. And, and then we can learn from best practices from each other. And that, that to me is the, the best piece of it. So I put it on every piece of social media. Maybe that helped, but I put it out on, on every Facebook page that I was, a uh, I liked in, and there are there are several Facebook pages out there that I put it on that have over a hundred thousand people that like it. So hopefully that helped too. Uh, so thanks, Gary. Thanks for that information. I'm I'm excited for some of this cool work that we're doing and that we're a part of. Community paramedic, international roundtable, international paramedic, and everything in between. And I think that it really just speaks a lot about um the the changes that are coming to our industry and and it just excites me because we're we're a change agent we should always be changing we should always be learning what we can do 
And speaking of changing and learning what we can do, uh, I think for my uh, the next topic, we ought to talk about the Virginia paramedics that are using ultrasound to do tests, I guess. I mean, I... Uh, but Pat, you said you're using it in your system. How long have you been using ultrasound where you're at and why? Maybe we lost Pat. I don't know. Pat. Hello. Maybe we're on mute. Pat. Oh, there you are there. <laughs> That's okay. I'll delete that part out. No, I won't. Not really. But anyway, so uh, tell me, uh, so how long have you had it in your system and why are you using it? And what, you know, what, what did you see the benefits for it? We had um, P, the the P10 actually started out. I think that was uh, it's going to slip my mind. The maker of the P10 now, but um, somebody out there, I'm sure, knows what it is. He come to us about two year, two three years ago, and ask us if there would be any advantageous uses in our system here. And we said, yeah, we'd give it a try. And I actually, did a study for about a year, and uh, my training officer. Uh, published a report somewhere on it. Can't remember quite where where it was, but since then it's kind of grown. The P10's kind of gone away, and we've gone to the new GA GE um, color ultrasound unit, and and we just found that for making decisions, uh, especially in trauma, on if we're going to bypass a critical access hospital and call a helicopter, or do those type of things out in the field, catch um, hot abbeys, those type of things and shorten the system's time that it was uh, really become advantageous to be able to have some sort of diagnosis in the field to get people coming in sooner. Or if it's just a simple burst spleen or fractured liver, something that can be fixed at a level four trauma center, then, then we can go straight there. Do they really cost like 60 to 70,000 each? Oh no, the GE, um, is like six thousand dollars, sixty seven hundred dollars, or something. Whoa. And it, it's very clear, and I can't remember um, all the technical aspects of it, but the depth that it goes is uh, just is very appropriate for use in the field. Um, to the point when we used it at Burning Man, we were able to diagnose kidney stones, um, different things like that that probably would have been uh, sent out for acute abdomens. Um, and yet we were able to diagnose them as kidney stones and refer them somewhere else. That's really amazing. I mean, I think now, now how, how about the paramedics comfort level? I mean, what extra training did you guys have to do at least, at least to get them proficient with it? Well, the, the fast exam is basically an eight hour course, a little less than an eight hour course. Um, we went, you know, way above and beyond that. We did about a week's long course. We did the fast exam. We did, um, Differential diagnosis between CHF and COPD. We did the pregnancy exams, um, cardiac tamponade, uh, aortic aneurysms, you know, hydration, volume status, those type of things. Uh, we, we put all the paramedics through so they had a really good feel and understanding. But it's just like any other technology out there. It's them actually putting it in their hand and using it and uh, scanning each other every day and learning how to, to read those scans. 
since we're part of the hospital, we were able to incorporate our radiology department into it and actually had them be the, the proctors over it. And they set a minimum number of exams that each of our paramedics had to have and then put them through a test to make sure that they were competent in reading those exams. And now for competencies, we send our paramedics down and uh, they assist the, the ultrasound techs in doing studies in the hospital so they can stay competent in between what they do in the field. But they're actually doing enough in the field that they're uh, that the physicians here are actually becoming amazed that when we call in and say, hey, this and this is going on, and they all know it's just the paramedics saying that when they get here and they go get an ultrasound done or go get a CT done, they're like, wow, you guys are right on. <laughs> That's really cool. And what about, Tim, what's your feeling on this? Have you Have you encountered any other systems and like from your research hat and how we can better utilize EMS personnel. How do you feel about that? No, I wrote about it uh, a year or two ago. I remember uh, that I looked at emergency physicians using it, the residents, and they were having trouble keeping them current on the use of ultrasound. So the impression I got was that it wouldn't be used enough. But if they're using it as frequently as Pat says, they should be able to maintain currency on it, maintain a skill level that <coughs> excuse me, that keeps them comfortable with it and uh, it keeps them learning. Well, even in the article, it says about 2,000 cases a year could involve the ultrasound machine, and then they could expect to evaluate about 250 patients for their study. So 2,000 patients a year... Depending on the size of your system, I mean, that. I mean, if you're running 200,000 calls, that's nothing. But if you're running 20,000 calls, that could be significant, and it may, may be able to keep the skill level up. Pat, you're only running 2,500 to 3,000 calls a year. Is that about right? Yeah, 2,100 calls a year. Um, so, we, you know, we incorporate our hospital for for maintenance of competencies. But I, I think it's the same as as uh, being able to be competent reading 12 lead EKGs. I mean, we, we make sure we continuously keep up on our companies there by by classwork and and uh, doing 12 leads. And it's the same thing with ultrasound. If you don't stuff it in the side of somebody's stomach and, and read or see what you can see, you, you kind of lose that, that um, those abilities. And, and Russell, what about you guys? As a fire department, how do you feel about utilizing another tool, basically have another tool in your tool bag. I mean, are you, you know, how do you, how do you guys feel about that? Or what do you feel personally? I mean, I don't know. I could see use for it. Uh, and like they're using it, we would probably be using it more, uh, for, uh, I mean, we get a lot of abdominal pain calls and, and some other, other issues. It would definitely be useful. The only, like, well, just about everything is, I mean, you're trying to equip 40 ambulances with a $8,000 piece of equipment it might get a little pricey but if there's if there would definitely be a use for it or we could use it for more than one, one or two things and it would be a plus and and in Memphis do you guys have a lot of trauma centers close or hospitals close where you could be where it wouldn't really matter maybe you're like gee it doesn't matter we're going to take everybody to this one anyway and it you know or it you know doesn't really matter whereas in Pat's case it's the difference between uh, maybe a ten minute ride and a three hour ride or something. Well, we we only have we only have the trauma center downtown, so 
and all the other hospitals are, are level two and level three. Um, it would be more useful for us as, as far as trauma goes to be able to take a look at more internal injuries. You know, you got a you got an accident where somebody refuses. Well, now now you now now it comes down to now we really can't say that we can't we can't assess and diagnose a uh, an abdominal injury or something like that. Now we we'd actually have the tool to be able to do that. Like, eh, you, you can't you probably shouldn't refuse this case because this says you're going to bleed out in a couple hours. So it would it would be useful from that standpoint. Uh, now we, like I said, we deal with a lot more medical complaints, uh, uh, abdominal pain and and, uh, and uh, extremity pain and stuff like that that we really don't have an assessment tool for. But with ultrasound, I could see an advantage to it. Now you make a good point. I mean, I think that that's a great diagnostic tool to rule out patients and and to maybe figure that out. Gary, are you, are, is anybody in, in Minnesota or Minneapolis area using that, or do you know? Um, I don't know, Chris. I have um, not been in the state very much the last few months. <laughs> ah, good point. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what? Well, what about um, in other areas of the country? Have you ever have you seen that or heard of it? Just what I've uh, seen in the news reports. Okay, very cool. Like on EMS1 and gems.com. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, I, I'm excited because I, I think that what it does for our industry is really allow us to, maybe it's like what the difference between a 3-lead and a 12-lead EKG did for our industry. We're really going to hopefully be able to revolutionize and take paramedics to that next level again of being good diagnosticians. I mean, I, I I look back and I think about how paramedics really have that skill and that scope to look at patients quickly and determine A, sick, not sick, but then really dive into what's going on with them. And whether the hospital wants to listen to us or not, that's their fault. But for the most part, I think paramedics are right on most of the time and maybe that's maybe that's just my own area go ahead be able to uh tell you that the person doesn't have a bleed doctors miss uh bleeds with the ultrasound because sometimes the blood is going to be in a part of uh the belly or in the retroperitoneal space that you don't get a good image on and are you seeing blood from trauma? Are you seeing liquid from something else? I don't use an ultrasound, but I know that there are a lot of things that will interfere with the clear ability to say, you're not injured, you don't need to go to the hospital. And how many of those cases where it's a slow bleed to the spleen, where you bring them to the community hospital, is it going to take before you start getting some... Uh, complaints from uh, the community hospital. I think it's a great idea, but we don't want to oversell it because then people are going to turn around and say, "No, you can't use that." Well, Pat, what's your what's your percentage of, uh, for lack of a better term, pass fail? Uh, yeah, pass fail or false positive? You know, I, I think we do have. A, I honestly couldn't give you that percentage. I'd have to look at the last year's numbers to give you those up top of my head it's very low um you and you know he's exactly right there is going to be there is that concern but i think the the use of the technology and keep and 
being able to appropriately triage patients, you know, trauma is the one where I suppose we have the more um, higher percentage of, rail, of failures on the slow bleeds, but those can be detected easily by CT, and that's where they're going to go through. It's the acute bleeds that we're able to uh, determine quickly and bypass our own hospital with our trauma protocols and intercept um, the helicopter services and actually reduce the system time of going to the appropriate facility and not, you know, if we go right into a critical access hospital every time, we get the bill for the ambulance, we get the bill for the the uh, being seen at the critical access hospital, we get the bill for the helicopter, and then we get the bill for the trauma center. So at least we're eliminating some of those um, bills to the patient and, and costs to the patient, doing things appropriate for the patient. But I think the other aspect of this, Chris, is this is, uh, you know, when we look at community paramedicine, um, this is technology that is should be used in community paramedicine, community health modalities. I mean, we transport people just to transport. Um, one of our cases is a uh, female patient that called in us called 911 and said, hey, can't feel the baby, haven't felt the baby for the last six hours. How many times do you get that call in an ambulance? We go there, we did an ultrasound, we called her um, OB doc, said this is what's going on, this is what we had, and he said, yeah, I'm fine with that. Why don't you leave her home and have her come in tomorrow at this time? We saved her the transport, we saved her the ER bill, um, and they were probably a non-pay patient, so more than likely we saved uh, the hospital the incurred costs on uh, that transport too. That probably just created a lot of controversy. No, well, you know that. But I, I don't know, Tim. What do you think? I mean, what do you think about what Pat's saying? You're asking me about creating controversy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are a controversy. Um, I don't think it should be controversial to look at things that way. I think the bigger controversy is when you start turning away patients who could be bringing in money to the organization. Then they're going to say, why are we paying for this extra training, paying for this equipment, and decreasing transports? Eventually, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry, I agree. And I think, though, with healthcare reform, that we really have to start looking at how do we change or, you know, the future is going to hold how we're going to get paid. And and high performance, transport everybody, pay for volume systems is eventually going to be a system of the past. And I think it is a detriment to patient care that we transport just because we have to to create money for the organization. You're exactly right that that's how systems are based right now. But is, is that the right thing to do? Is Are we actually taking care of patients appropriately, their, not only their health and wellness, but their financial well-being? And I think as we progress down the road of hospitals, if healthcare reform goes to where a hospital gets X amount of dollars for X amount of, for a, a patient, and they have to pay all the vendors out of that lump sum, which, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, pay for performance or pay for outcome type, Modalities, then um, these things are beginning to come more and more prominent. We're going to have to look at the merger with, and I, th- I think this ties right back into community paramedicine. And we're going to have to look at the how we merge uh, public safety with public health and and taking a you know keeping our communities healthy through uh, a different you know outside the box through paramedicine through different people doing it, whether it be an MPA, a paramedic, a, a PA, those type of modalities. I agree. I think this is something that 
uh, will help us to show that we can do things, but uh, we're going to need to do a lot more studies on it before there's any consensus on whether it's good for all EMS organizations. Um, sure. I know that some of the ones that I'm familiar with, they uh, their paramedics are not doing much more than basic EMS, uh, very cookbook medicine, non-rebreather on everybody, and everybody gets an IV and everybody gets the monitor. And if you deviate from that, you're in trouble. doesn't matter if you kill the patient, but... As long as you give them the oxygen mask, the IV, and the monitor, uh, you've done all that they expect of their people. Sure, sure. Well, isn't that the isn't that the what we're about? Right? No, no, no. You know, actually, I feel like we've we've progressed beyond that though as an industry, and really said we have the ability to have, do that. But right. some are still doing that. But why? I mean, why do why do we as an industry? Fear. Uh, I know, but why do, people, why do people like that? And anybody who tells you that they can predict what, alert, what a jury is going to decide is lying to you. Um, you can go in front of a jury, and if you've got the most persuasive expert, then you will probably win the case. Uh, if you have um, the side that has the most sympathetic client, then you will probably win the case. There are a lot of things that are involved. You, you can't look at a case and say, oh, this one, you're definitely going to win. That's why a lot of cases, they go to trial, and then during the trial they realize the jury's not really buying our side of it, so we're going to settle. Sometimes it's the defense, sometimes or uh, yeah, sometimes it's the plaintiff, sometimes it's uh, the defense. Yeah, well, okay. So I I believe in I ultimately believe in this statement that people don't know when they're killing you. They don't. They know when you're being rude, and that's why they sue you. They sue people because they're rude and mean, and then they find. I mean, I think on every EMS call everywhere in the United States, and if you're a defense attorney or a a litigating plaintiff's attorney, I'm sorry that you're actually going to hear this now, but I'm sure on every EMS call every day of the week, you could find something wrong to sue for. Bad documentation, poor patient care, uh, stupid person, whatever the case is. Some harm. Well, that's hard to prove, agreed. But again, people. And that's what they bring before the judge, and the judge says, well, I don't see any. Um, relationship between what harm happened here and what was done. But let's I think what he's getting at is that it doesn't stop them from filing. Right. And scaring you. Well, you can you. file for anything, and you can be yeah. the nicest person in the world. You can hand them candy and, uh, you know, whatever, and they'll still have the possibility of suing if they misinterpret something that you do. All right. Well, yeah. Great point. Uh, well, you know, we are getting close to wrapping this episode and wanted to give you guys a last chance to talk about anything we've talked about tonight. So, Russell, uh, Pat, Gary, anything else you guys want to talk about? Tim, sorry, Tim. Anything else you guys want to talk about tonight as far as international paramedic or ultrasound or anything in between? I love the idea of the international paramedic. I think that 
having an organization that is pushing for improvement in the quality of EMS and basing it on things that can be demonstrated so that it doesn't matter if you are in France, if you are in South Africa, or if you're in the United States, you can do the same thing and expect similar results. Uh, the research is what shows us how we can help our patients, and that's what EMS is all about. Are, are we doing what we can to decrease the illness and the suffering of our patients? And we can go by hunches or we can go by the research. And, um, you know, they're looking at this from many different perspectives, but it's like, what can we show that actually works? And that's important. I love that. I lo- well, I love that perspective because I think that eventually we need to be we need to be more conscientious about evidence based practice and and the more industry matures and the more that we really want to take on healthcare and be a part of healthcare, we as an industry can do that. So I appreciate that. I really appreciate that type of thinking around what we do. Anyone else? Going, going, gone. All right. Well. Mr. Gary Wingrove, where can people find you if they want to call you or contact you or anything else? Um, the link you put on the webpage. Which it, which will be <laughs> International Round uh, International Paramedic, IRCP, Community Paramedic, uh, yada yada yada. Which one oh, do you want? <laughs> well, um, you could put me at Wingrove at internationalparamedic.org. Very nice. Right on. And uh, can anybody get an international paramedic uh, domain behind their name? Because that would be really cool. Um, or do you have to be on the We don't have a process. Yeah, we don't have a process to automate that. We've got um, set up for most of the steering committees for now. Cool. That's something uh, something that, uh, I can throw into the mix of things to talk about. Wouldn't that be awesome, though, is to, to have everybody be able to sign up, and when you sign up, you become blah, 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 at community parent or at international paramedic.org that'd be pretty cool anyway it's an awesome thought what do i know uh mr pat songer where can people find you besides waiting to talk to me yeah i know gotta <laughs> unmute again sorry kids were yelling um where can they find me i at my desk, I guess. <laughs> uh, you're not um, at your desk very often. Don't lie. You're not at your desk very often. <laughs> That's true. Feel free to email me at psonger at hghospital.ws. That'd be great. Right on. Very cool. Mr. Tim Noonan, where can people find you? Uh, roguemedic.com and uh, paramedicine101.com, which are both at uh, emsblogs.com. And if we ever get it started going again, uh, EMS Research Podcast, which is researchems.com. Oh, man, I, I hope you guys get that going again because I really miss those episodes. So well, It's a problem getting a quorum. Uh, well, and there's very few people that are really passionate about talking about EMS research, so that always becomes a, a much harder piece. Maybe you could get Daniel Patterson on your show from Gary Wingrove and talk about the IMSARN and all those good things. I'll price, I'll steal them too, but I think it'd be good. Sounds like a good idea. Cool. And Mr. Russell Stein, where can people find you? Uh, hybridmedic.com, hybridmedic on Twitter. 
uh, Facebook.com slash hybridmedic. Wow. You're, yeah. Why? So I've never asked, why are you the hybrid medic? Um, it's a short story. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, all the good, all the good dash medic names were taken, so I just picked a word out of the dictionary. <laughs> fire, fire medic was taken, and all the other ones. So, well, I kind of do both. So, what would be another word for that? Nice. So, yeah. Okay, I like it. All right, I get it. I get it now. I get it. I always thought you were like some like. So I I was plankton and then I turned into an amoeba. So you're hybrid. I don't know. I'm just uh, going no. for the evolution piece there. Okay, all right, that's um, all right. Well, thank you guys for joining us and uh, thanks for joining us tonight. I'm super excited to be talking about things and uh, we have a really cool new show coming up. I promise you, the paradox will get posted probably this weekend uh it's been a long time since we've had any new episodes from them i have like seven in the can so they'll probably all come up over overnight basically um there's even a couple video ones so the paradox podcast is pretty cool so thanks for joining me i'm chris montero the geeky medic join us next week when we talk about more issues that concern you in ems have a great day night weekend whatever you're doing